Standing for the reading of Scripture this morning, you'll find that in the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 4. Uh, we continue on in the exposition of Mark's Gospel, straight talk about Jesus Christ, coming to chapter 4 this uh, morning. And as been our practice, I'm going to give you an overview of the chapter before we then return to giving exposition through the chapter. So this morning I'll be reading selective passages in chapter 4. They're marked out in your bulletin, but I'll call them out. As we turn to hear the word of God, Mark chapter 4, verse 1. And again, he, Jesus, began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. And then to down to verses 10 through 12. But when he, that is Jesus, was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things are done in parables, so that seeing they may see and not perceive, that hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins should be forgiven them. And then down to verses 33 and 34. And with many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all the things to his disciples. And then verses 39 through 41. Then he arose, that is Jesus, and rebuked the wind. And he said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. But he said to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, Who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? And we'll end our reading of the Holy Scriptures there this morning. Please be seated. Have you ever heard of a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma? Well, that expression comes from a radio broadcast in 1939 by Winston Churchill. Uh, In that broadcast, he said, I cannot forecast to you the actions of Russia. It is a riddle wrapped in a mystery inside an enigma. Well, the riddle, mystery, enigma, entanglement, I think, helps to illustrate Jesus' parables about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Uh, That's one of the challenges that we have here in Mark chapter 4, what Jesus says about his parables, his parables about his revealing or concealing mysteries about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now, I want to point out to you that we need to understand the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God references the same thing. Uh, those terms are used interchangeably in the different Gospels. So they're not two separate things, the kingdom of heaven being one thing and the kingdom of God being something else. That has been an attempt that has been made uh, by interpretation of some. But they're used interchangeably and they refer to the same thing. Now we come to Mark chapter 4 this morning and Mark continues with straight talk about Jesus Christ as the gospel source, being uniquely Son of God. That's where we find the gospel. What's the good news? It's the good news that God's revealing His way of salvation through His only begotten Son. The Son of God is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is Lord. He is mediator of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. That's something that we really need to pay attention to in this chapter this morning. That Jesus Christ is Lord. He is Master. He is King. He is the mediator of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus Christ is Creator. He is uncreated God. Those two things are uniquely put together for us in chapter 4 that are important for us to observe. In the two parts of Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 34, we have Jesus' didactic parables 
are used to reveal and conceal his mysteries about the kingdom of heaven. And then we have in verses 25 through 41, Jesus' divine powers are used to rebuke and calm by his mastery over the realm of creation. And uh, as I said, I want to give an overview of this chapter that you see these two things go together. They're intended and being uh, presented to us in this way. Uh, Often, as I said, we take uh, the chapter in verse divisions and we kind of uh, put them in Tupperware, as it were. We don't see the bigger picture. Now, the preaching and teaching excerpts and the episodes that we have in chapter 4 of Mark are connected with chapter 3. We find in Matthew chapter 13 that this is on the same day. The events that took place in chapter 3 continue now on into chapter 4 on the same day, elaborating and contradicting the Beelzebub blasphemy. Remember, Jesus was charged with being of the devil. And Jesus talked about the the unforgivable sin of attributing the things of God to the devil. And that uh, people said that Jesus, or these Pharisees, these scribes, I think it was actually the scribes, the doctors of the law that came down from Jerusalem, they were intent on doing evil, they were plotting murder, and they were saying that Jesus had an unclean spirit. They were saying Jesus was demon-possessed. And they were saying the things that Jesus did and said were of the devil and the kingdom of the devil. And Jesus started the parable there. He said, I'm going to give you a parable about a strong man and going into a, a strong man's house. And Jesus is saying, I'm going into the kingdom. I'm going into the house of Satan. And I'm going to ransack it. I'm going to turn it up. I'm going to turn it upside down. I'm going to destroy the kingdom of the devil. I'm not in league with the devil. I am going to defeat the devil and his kingdom. So going into chapter 4 now continues the same day. And we have Jesus self-attesting kingdom parables. It's not the kingdom of Satan, but his self-attesting kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. And it's not in being in league with the devil, but destroying the devil. And he demonstrates his creative powers. He rebukes the storms like he rebukes the devil and the demons. So he is both Savior and Creator. That's what's being presented to us here in chapter 4 of the Gospel of Mark. So Jesus Christ, remember it's a name and a title. Jesus means Savior. Christ means Anointed One. Messiah means Anointed Jesus Christ, the anointed Savior, he is the mediator of the new covenant, which identifies and includes the kingdom to be the church. I cannot overemphasize that because it's very much confused in our day and seems to have been off and on throughout the history of the church, that Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. This includes and and identifies his kingdom, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, to be the church of the new covenant. And so the kingdom parables are about the new covenant church. Again, I must over and over emphasize that to you. People try to interpret the parables and the mysteries of the parables of the kingdom of God. They cannot be understood or right. And they cannot be applied to us if not with the understanding that the new covenant church is the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as fulfilling and reconciling the old covenant promises and types by new and better promises of the new covenant. Here are a couple of passages from Hebrews that you ought to mark and really remember, help to guide us from uh, Hebrews chapter 8. But now he, that is Jesus, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. The new covenant is better and has better promises than the old covenant by way of fulfillment and reconciliation in terms of the gospel, the good news of which Jesus is the source. He's the living source of the gospel as the Son of God. 
And then in chapter 9 of Hebrews, for this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator, <clears throat> is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. That's what Jesus tells us here in, in chapter 4 of Mark, that these parables of the, the mysteries of the kingdom of God are being revealed to those who are called, revealing the gospel, the good news. Those whom uh, God has called from far and wide and has revealed the truth of those mysteries is salvation through Jesus Christ and being citizens of the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' kingdom parables reveal and conceal his mysteries about the kingdom of heaven and God. These mysteries are told to us in scripture things that we could not know on our own. They're what God reveals. We can't figure it out on our own. That's why the world doesn't understand it. The world doesn't get it. Even though it's told to them, they are blinded because they do not believe. The mysteries of God are God's holy secrets. They're the things that, that He reveals that could not otherwise be known. They come from God. Jesus is the keeper of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. He's revealing them to us. He's telling us. And these parables make sense to us because by faith we understand who Jesus Christ is as King and Savior. The mediator of the new covenant. We are redeemed through him. And so the, the mysteries of the kingdom revealed in the parables connect with us. We get it. But there are those outside. Unbelievers who are disloyal. Even though intellectually it can be told to them. They don't believe it. And so they remain mysteries. They remain veiled. They remain hidden to them because of unbelief. Now Jesus did not invent the parable form. We find it examples of it uh, in the Old Testament scriptures as well, and in, in extra biblical uh, uh, history as well, and references. Jesus did not invent the parable, but Jesus took the parable form and used it specifically for the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Jesus identifies his use of parables to be about revealing his kingdom, his mysteries, to his disciple believers. Uh, look at the verses here. We'll come back to give a, a more full exposition as we go through chapter 4. But just note, beginning in verse 2, And Jesus taught them many things by parables. And he said to them in his teaching, and he goes on to give a seminal parable that we'll be looking at next time. Look at verses 10 and 11. But when he was alone... Those around him with the twelve, not just the uh, apostles now, but also other disciples, we've learned about that, uh, ask him about the parable. This is particularly the parable of the what we refer to as the sower, which we'll have more to say about. Verse 11, And Jesus said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things are done in parables. So again, saying that, that the mysteries of the kingdom are revealed by Jesus in teaching as he's the keeper of the mysteries and as he teaches them to those who are believing disciples who understand. Look at verse 22. For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. So that's a condition that Jesus reveals about uh, true believers and disciples and followers. Their ears have been opened. They have ears of faith. And so it is open to them. The hidden things are revealed. And the things that have been kept secret, God's holy secrets are bought, brought to light. And they're perceived and understood by faith. We'll have more to say, as I said, as we go on in the exposition of the chapter. Look at verse 30. Jesus said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what a parable shall we picture it? So he's revealing these things. The kingdom of God by parables. 
And then in verses 33 through 34. And with many such parables he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable he did not speak to them. And when they were alone he explained all things to his disciples, the believing followers of the Lord Jesus. And we look to the scriptures as believing followers, as believing students, as believing disciples of the Lord Jesus. We look to the scriptures. We learn about the interpretation and we learn how to apply it to the many parables that Jesus taught, mainly that these are being revealed, the mysteries of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that is the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we'll have more to say about that uh, as we go along. Now, Jesus also intends his use of parables to conceal his kingdom mysteries from disloyal unbelievers. And and there is more of a class here of obstinate unbelievers. We saw that last week in chapter 3 with the uh, scribes, the the, um, uh, uh, teachers of the law, and how they were set against and how they had a progressive hardening to the point that they were even attributing the manifest works of God to the devil. And we saw that that was a serious, serious condition. It's not the condition of every unbeliever because unbelievers are brought to salvation. Unbelievers are called out of darkness into light. You and I were once unbelievers in the world, walking according to uh, the uh, flesh and of the world and of the devil. But we were redeemed and called out of darkness into the marvelous light. So this is not the condition of every unbeliever. Every unbeliever is dead in trespasses and sin. Every unbeliever has not become uh, calloused in reprobation. And there is mystery about that as well. But Jesus intends the use of these parables to also conceal his kingdom mysteries from disloyal unbelievers. Look at verse 9. And he said to them, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. But he references uh, Isaiah's prophecy that some people's ears are stopped up. They may hear with their physical ear, but they do not hear with the ear of faith. And so if you look at verses 11 and 12, we have here Jesus referencing Isaiah. To you it shall be given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things are done in parables. So that, and here is his reference from Isaiah's prophecy, seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Now we're going to have to understand that passage in relationship to God's sovereignty and salvation, and particularly as it relates to chapter 3 and that mystery of reprobation. As I said, All sinners, all unregenerate are dead in trespasses and sin and must be called to life by the power of the Spirit of God. But all unregenerate sinners are not in the condition of reprobation as is referenced uh, what Jesus said about being unforgiven for eternity. So those are heavy things, but we want to look to Scripture and understand what Jesus says about them. And he he says to us that his parables have a twofold purpose. It's like a two-edged sword. And that he intends that his parables also be used to, to uh, conceal those holy secrets of God, the mysteries of the kingdom, from the disloyal unbelievers. Uh, look at verse 23. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. That means ears of faith. Have your ears been opened? Do you understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus Christ as Lord and King and Savior? Look at verse 30. I'm sorry, verse 25, my mistake. Verse 25. For whoever has, to him more will be given. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. I think Jesus is referencing the great day, the great day of judgment here. And we'll have, again, more to say about that in time to come. And we could reference back to chapter 3, what Jesus said, verses 38 through 30 there. 
So you see that, that Jesus' parables have a twofold purpose. He's the master of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. He's the keeper. He is the mediator. And so Jesus intends, uh, he identifies uh, his parables as revealing the kingdom mysteries, and he intends the use of his parables to also conceal his kingdom uh, mysteries. And then here's a, a, a quote or a reference from the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5 and verse 6. I think it's so useful. I know it's heavy, but listen to what this passage in the confession says. As for those wicked and ungodly men whom God, as a righteous judge, for former sins doth blind and harden, from them he not only withholdeth his grace whereby they might be enlightened in their understandings and wrought upon by their hearts, but sometimes also withdraweth the gifts which they had and exposeth them to such objects as their corruption makes occasions of sin, and withal gives them over to their own lust, the temptations of the world, and the power of Satan, whereby it comes to pass that they harden themselves, even under those means which God uses for the softening of others. Now isn't that a very apt description of what was going on when Jesus was preaching and teaching and healing and casting out demons and even the demons were testifying to him, you, you are the son of God, and he was rebuking the demons and keeping them uh, quiet and saying, I'm not going to receive testimony from you. And what happened? Those hard-hearted scribes had been given over to such hatred and God withheld from them even the enlightenment and even the softening in seeing the things that Jesus did that they attributed to the devil because of their hatred and their hard-heartedness. And the very means that God used to soften the hearts of many people that rejoiced and said, who can do this but only God? And Jesus said, I have power on earth to forgive sin. And many people's sins were forgiven. I think more people's sins were forgiven than bodies were healed because that's more important. And yet what happened? The very means that God used to soften the hearts of many turned to harden the rebellious, deeply uh, embittered hatred hearts of those whom God had given over. Same thing happens today. There are conspicuous infidels throughout our land. Everywhere. They manifest themselves uh, in the public media. And they're proud and boastful and puffed up. They're new atheists. Now, I don't have the, the authority of God to say they are reprobate. God does call even out of that deep darkness those who are given over to perversions and given over to uh, their sins. God does call to salvation uh, those. But some are given over. We must continue preaching the gospel. We have to uh, uh, confess and trust that God will sort out and God will deal justly with the reprobate. That's not our prerogative. That's God's prerogative in Christ. All judgment has been given to the Son. What does He tell us to do? He tells us to continue to witness to the gospel. Not to grow weary. Not to lose hope. Not to try to turn to other means. Not to use human means, even human intellect, to try to convince. Let us be true to the Word of God. The Word of God is not anti-intellectual. But you're never going to reason someone to the faith. I don't care. You can stack up reasons about creation. You can stack up reasons about science. You can stack up reasons about philosophy from here to the moon and back. You will never change anybody's heart by that. I don't say that we don't confront them on it, but we have to know that it's only the power of the Holy Spirit of God that can change a dead heart into a living heart. It's only as uh, Ezekiel the prophet saw and said, you know, Lord, whether dead bones can be brought back to life. And dead bones are brought to life. Dead spiritual bones are brought to life by the power of the gospel in proclaiming that Jesus is Lord and Savior and Creator of all. 
That's what we have before us here in chapter 4. He is the keeper of the mysteries of the kingdom of God. He's the mediator of God's means of salvation. He has power to save because he is the creator who created all. That's what we need to see and that's what we need to hope for. Don't lose hope. At the end of this chapter, Jesus rebukes his disciples for being of little faith. How does he have no faith? And I'm going to say that to you because God knows and God searches at our heart. And I'm going to say, how is it you have no faith? And I'm going to say, how is it you have no faith? Because we're looking to ourselves rather than looking to Jesus as mediator, as king, and as creator. Now, Jesus' mastery over the realm of creation is distinguished from his mediating grace of salvation. Beloved, I cannot make a more important statement to you. This has carried me and and built over the years of ministry and the study of the Word of God, and I thank the Lord for it. it. It has taught me so much that Jesus' mastery over the realm of creation is distinguished. It's different from His mediating the grace of salvation. Look at verse 39. And He, Jesus, arose from sleeping in the boat and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased. And there was a great calm. All right, this goes into the second portion of John of Mark chapter 4. We've heard Jesus talking about the parables and the, the purpose of the parables and his being the keeper of the mysteries of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And now we see him uh, rising out of the boat when the disciples were fearful that they were going to drown. Uh, again, I will have more to say about this as we get to that point in the exposition. But Jesus rebukes the wind and the storm and the sea. And there was a great calm because he has mastery over the realm of creation because he is the creator. Now, Jesus Christ, by his divine nature, being the Son of God, shares universal sovereignty. What does that mean? Jesus is God. He shares with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit universal sovereignty. He is is the sovereign God over all so that by His divine nature, the second person of the Holy Trinity, He shares uncreated eternality and equality in the Godhead, the deep mystery of the doctrine of the Trinity. And I need to focus you on that, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is universal creator and Sovereign. He is Lord, King, Master over all as God. He is God and there is none other. He is uncreated. Everything else is created. All right? And the second person of the Holy Trinity that is revealed to us in the incarnation, Jesus Christ, He is the second person of the Holy Trinity. But He is also, by the incarnation, with two natures, the God-man, the one and only unique Son of God, Son of Man. And so the human nature of the person of Jesus came into time and space history at the incarnation. The second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God, is co-eternal, uncreated. But the human nature of the man Jesus is real, real human. Didn't exist before. Like you and I did not exist other than in the infinite mind of God. I know there's deep mystery here. But there is this wonderful mystery revealed to us by the incarnation of God in the flesh, Emmanuel. And that He came to this earth. He came like us in the likeness of our sinful flesh, but without sin. Ultimately, in the likeness of our sinful flesh, that He could die. He did not die for His sins. 
He died for our sins. A reference was made in Sunday school this morning about Jesus praying and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood and, and facing the cross and praying, God, that it, that cup could pass from him. It was not in sinful uh, rebellion that Jesus was praying that. It was in the likeness of our weakness to look at the prospect of what he was going to suffer. He was a true human. And there is deep and wonderful mystery in all of that. Now, by this mystery of the incarnation, God-man, Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. He only operates the means of His saving grace by the Holy Spirit through His kingdom, the church, and not through the sovereign powers over creation. No one is saved by looking at birds. No one is saved by going on a trip to the Grand Canyon. You're, oh, oh, preacher, I don't believe that. I believe there are people who say that they see God's handiwork and it makes them think about God. Okay, how can they know God? Only by the gospel of His Son, Jesus Christ. I'm glad that people's souls are stirred when they see the creation, but it will not save them. It's only faith in Jesus Christ that will save them. And if the creation drives them to seek out more and to know this God, fine. Otherwise, they're as lost as the other False believers in the world who believe in any other God or the God of creation. People who believe in the God of the mountain. People who believe in the God of the sea. They're lost because they don't believe in God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. He's the only way of salvation. Now I know that as far as I know, everyone in here this morning professes faith in Jesus Christ and is identified with Him in baptism. Some maybe have not yet, but, but here's the point. You think because you have already confessed faith in Jesus Christ, you don't need to hear about this great salvation? We never grow weary of hearing about it. Not only because we're saved, but we will be saved. (laughs) That's what Scripture says. Yeah, you're saved today. You will be saved forever. I don't ever grow tired of hearing it. I'll tell you another reason I don't grow tired of hearing it. Because we're constantly being pressed with having to do something else. Oh, that's not enough anymore. Preaching the gospel is not enough. Hearing about Jesus as being the uh, mediator of the covenant and, and being the creator of all, that's not enough. We need more than that. No, we don't. We need to be faithful, not of little faith, but of great faith. And I'm calling you to faith in preaching the whole word of God to you. So you need to understand that Jesus, as the only mediator, he's the only one between us and God. No other mediation, not mountains, not birds, not fish, not doing good works, not getting involved in social activity or or do-goodism. And all those things may be great. I love birds and fish. Especially when they're so tasty. And that's not what a lot of people think of when they think about bird and fish. But that doesn't, it, it may give nourishment to my body. It will not save my soul. And so Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. And he only operates his means of saving grace through the church. You know, the scriptures make an important distinction between general revelation and special revelation. General revelation reveals God the Creator. There is no one without excuse. Everyone will be held accountable to God. But special revelation reveals God's one and only way of salvation to be through His Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He is uniquely the King of the church, the kingdom of God. And there is no salvation outside of that. People get upset with that statement. There is no ordinary means of salvation outside of the church. We don't mean outside of this church building. We mean outside of the appointed means of grace. From hearing and believing. Hearing and believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and Savior. That's the only way of salvation. And that's what we must continue 
in this day as in all days, in this generation as in all generations, we never assume that people are just saved because they're churchgoers or because they're do-gooders. We must preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And you know what is celebrated from Genesis all the way through Revelation? Do you know what is celebrated? The two manifestations to us that God is Creator and God is Savior. And you can't separate the two. From the opening pages of Genesis, God is Creator and God is Savior. To the book of Revelation, in the precincts of heaven and the antiphonal worship and the doxologies to God, God is celebrated as Creator and God is celebrated as Savior. What should we be worshiping on earth? Look, if we have a pattern given us, revealed by the exalted and resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, we're given a, a glimpse, a peek into heavenly worship. God is celebrated and worshiped there as creator and savior. You think we can pick out, pick out something else? Oh, let's decide we're going to worship God as financial advisor. We're going to worship God as um, the uh, great farmer. Uh, you, you, you can be silly about all this. No, don't we want to follow the heavenly pattern? God is worshipped as creator and savior. And he's revealed himself to us in Jesus Christ, the anointed savior, the son of God, the son of man. So here in chapter 4, Mark continues with straight talk about Jesus Christ as the gospel source being uniquely son of God. Jesus Christ is Lord, Master. He's mediator of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus Christ is the revealed creator to us. He is the uncreated God. Now the theological distinction between Jesus' mediatorial kingship and his divine universal sovereignty is often missed and causes entanglement with questions about biblical authority and Christian ethics in social and political philosophy. That's going on today as it has in the past. We can learn a lot from the past. I've learned a lot to help me through this, this entanglement. Right now, there, there's all kinds of smoke and, and, and disputes and discussion going on about the application of biblical authority to Christian ethics in the realm of social and political philosophy. And I don't hear any discussion about the church as being the kingdom of God. I, I hear misguided ideas that, oh, the church is a part of the kingdom of God. The church is just one sphere in the kingdom of God. Jesus does not mediate His grace through the civil authorities. Jesus does not mediate His grace through the family covenant. You cannot save your children. You can obey Christ. You can have them in church. You can receive the, the, the mystery of baptism as a covenant promise. They can be nurtured and trained. and They can come to, to become communing members within the body of Christ. You cannot save your children. Christ does not mediate His saving grace through dad or mom. Christ does not mediate His saving grace through the political father and mother, the king and the queen, or whatever other political uh, authority there might be, the governor or the mayor. That's been one of the most testy disputes throughout church history. Civil authorities cannot mediate the means of grace. The mayor cannot baptize you. If he baptizes you, it's an invalid baptism. He doesn't have the authority from Christ to baptize you. Only the minister of Christ, ordained by Christ, and according to his word, has the authority to baptize you. 
I know there are those who claim to have covenant home churches and they baptize their children in bathtubs. I'm sorry, that's not baptism. That's not new covenant baptism. Now, God is merciful, but that does that is not baptism because the uh, word and sacraments are to be administered only by an ordained minister called and validated by the word of God in testimony to Christ and his headship. Are there spurious ministers who baptize people? They do. And baptism's validity doesn't depend upon the person of the one administering the baptism, but acting in that office and in the authority of the baptismal formula of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's God's way. And beloved, it's my responsibility to hold you accountable to God's way. That's why I say when we have this Lord's Supper, you remember what I say? This is not the table of Brookwood Presbyterian Church. This is the Lord's table. It's for the visible church on earth. Jesus has given us what we need to know about this. And he's warned us through his word and through his apostles about it. Those who come to receive this Lord's Supper are to have identified with Christ in baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In membership of the church, a local body that believes that Jesus is the Savior. You can't make up your own church. A lot of people think they can. We'll just have home church. And I'm, a, I'm, I'm the uh, husband, father, elder in my church. That's not ordination. There is accountability, covenantal accountability, but that's not the ordinance of Christ. I am seeking to obey the Lord in telling you these things. Furthermore, we're told that uh, concerning this Lord's Supper, you're not to be harboring bitterness and unre- uh, uh, unresolved sin. Uh, you're not to be resentful against others. We've been hearing a lot about that in Sunday school, which is very helpful because we tend to hold on to grudges. We tend to want to blame others. And coming to this Lord's Supper, we're not admonished that we don't have sin. We're admonished not to belittle or hide or deny our sin. I read that passage from 1 John. Don't say you have no sin. You make God out to be a liar because God says you do have sin. And the Holy Spirit testifies to you of that sin. Don't let that stop you from coming to the Lord's Supper. It's not sin that stops you from coming to the Lord's Supper. It's unconfessed sin. You confess that sin. Lord, I'm sick of it. I'm ashamed of it. I hate it. But I keep struggling with it. Give me courage. Give me strength. Give me understanding to deal with it. But the disposition of your heart is not to try to excuse yourself or deny your sin, but humbly to pray for the Lord's strength and grace, not only to forgive, but to overcome. That's what this Lord's Supper is for. That's why we often observe it. I'm so thankful before the Lord that we move to this observance of the Lord's Supper. We were doing it uh, every week, morning and evening, and we'll return to that when we reestablish the evening service. But we have a regular observance at least twice in the month of the Lord's Supper. And this is one of the things I say to you. Why would we not want the Lord's Supper as often as we want preaching, as we want praying, as we want singing, as we want benediction? I've told you before that in the weakness of my flesh and my old fuddled memory, if one of these Sundays I forget to do the the benediction, to, to speak the parting words of peace to you, the blessing of the Lord as you depart from worship, I hope you'll all just sit where you are. We're not leaving without a blessing, Pastor. We're not leaving without the words of blessing. Do you get tired of that? You know when we get tired of things? 
You know, when we get tired of the preaching of the word, or when we get tired of the Lord's Supper, or we get tired of the benediction, we get tired because we get bored. And we get bored because we're of little faith. We're thinking about our own things rather than the things of God. You see, that's part of my responsibility to call you to faithfulness before the Lord. Don't get bored. Don't be of little faith. Believe and confess that Jesus is the Creator, that Jesus is the Savior. And let us desire. I I hope that you'll be saying, I want to hear more about the mysteries of the kingdom. I've heard this parable a lot, but I want to hear more about it. I want to hear it again. I want to have ears to ear. I want to understand. And I want to believe. Help my unbelief, Lord Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. The day of the Lord is coming. It's a day of reckoning. A lot of people don't like that. They don't want to hear, Preacher, you didn't need to say that. That's going to turn people off if you talk about the day of reckoning that's coming. I'm not worried about turning people off. I'm worried about accounting to God that I preach the word of God faithfully and boldly so that no one is with the, can have an excuse that they never heard. The day of reckoning is coming. The day of judgment. The day of the Lord is coming. But today is the day of salvation. And that is the straight talk about Jesus Christ that we must never grow bored of hearing. As we come to the Lord's Supper, the blessing and the benefits of communing with the Lord and with one another according to what He has revealed, the mysteries He has revealed to us. That's why it's called a sacrament. I think